we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We've been looking at individuals in these Christmas narratives that have, uh, that met the pre-born Christ, were encountered with his coming in some way. And so, so far we've looked at, um, we've seen Elizabeth, we've seen Mary, and today we're going to be looking at Joseph. We've looked at Zechariah week one, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary last week, and then this morning we're looking at Joseph. There's really um, uh, three, three things that we'll be focusing on in this story of Joseph. Um, the hope of Christmas, which really is that God hasn't only broken into this world in Advent, right, but there's a second Advent, we're still awaiting his second advent to finally finish all the prophecies and everything that was said, he will return and that's what we're still waiting for. That when we live in light of this biblical story, as you look at Joseph doing so and responding to it in his own life in scripture, we're gonna see three things that kind of arise from this story. Number one, how God's work in our lives is often up against the cultural norms of our society. Um, number two, God's work through our lives is often up and against the cultural work, uh, norms of our society. So God's work in our lives and then through our lives often does this against the world we live in. And the last thing we'll see in his story here is how even though when those things happen and they're difficult and they're challenging, that God's work at Christmas and Easter provides a hope that allows us to persevere and whatever we may be going through in that time. All right, so we'll be looking at Matthew chapter one, verse 18, and that first point, first how God's work in our lives is often confusing to us and those around us. So beginning of verse 18, Matthew chapter one. I didn't bring the red Bible up, but I'll tell you the page number, but this is the first book in the New Testament, page one in the New Testament. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Uh, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce, divorce her quietly. So, um, to give a little context of this, these short couple of verses here, Joseph and Mary were betrothed, okay? There's somewhat of an equivalent today of being engaged, even though today's engagements are kind of flippant, you know, uh, in, in light of these ancient, you know, commitments to marriage. To actually break off the betrothal to, a betrothal to marriage would have been equivalent of getting a divorce. It was a legally binding contract that you couldn't necessarily just walk away from, right, without having to actually have a divorce. And in those days, you know, in those days, this was a huge and major cultural issue. And so at this point also, you know, this was kind of like an arranged marriage kind of society in many ways, and Joseph probably didn't know Mary that well. They probably hadn't spent a whole lot of time together. And there's even, you know, in some cases, there's, you know, a year or two as the, 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 the man kind of prepares for marriage by 
getting his stuff together and building this new room on his parents' home and so they can live in there when they're married and make sure his job is in order. And there's a lot of work to do before marriage. And so these two probably hadn't really seen much of each other in their engagement, don't really know each other very well. And suddenly he finds out, this woman I'm engaged to is pregnant. Huh, that's a bit of a problem. And so he doesn't want to embarrass her or shame her, so he quietly says, I'm just gonna end this thing and just kind of like slowly sidestep out of the picture, okay? And this, was, this is a kind of a scandalous story, right? In many ways, Mary would have been considered an adulterer at this point, even though she wasn't married, right? And so verse 20 picks up the story as Joseph is just quietly, doesn't want to embarrass her, ashamed her, just kind of like slither kind of out, just slide out of the story in verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So he goes to sleep, he passes out asleep and has a dream of an angel, Okay. And it's not just like a, some kind of one of those dreams where you wake up, you're like, what did I just dream? Like this angel starts talking directly to him by name, okay, like a monologue. That's never happened to me before for an angel, okay? So this isn't just an ordinary dream. This angel says in his dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. <clears throat> you are to name him the name Jesus. Give him the name Jesus. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we, as we've seen many times in the story so far in our Advent season, in the Hebrew scriptures, what we normally call the Old Testament today, it's all been leading up to this moment. The angel of the Lord, unnamed, appears to Joseph in a dream. Could have possibly been Gabriel, because that was the one that showed it to Mary and Zechariah. We don't know. But this angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and encourages him to actually go through with this, to not walk away from Mary, to not divorce her, because this pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit. We don't know if Mary had told Joseph at this point. Matthew hasn't communicated any of that. But we do know that this angel told Joseph this is no ordinary pregnancy. It's not what you think it is. This is from God. And never before in history has this no, no written account in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is there anybody of this kind of pregnancy coming about. This is a first. And the angel says, it's okay this is from God. The Holy Spirit calls her to conceive. And this is no ordinary child. This would be the Messiah that was to come. And Joseph himself would play a part as the man he would name his child. And he was given a name from this angel, the name Jesus. All of this was again fulfilling what Isaiah said, that a child would be born to a virgin named, uh, and this child would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I want to just pause here and just do our best to put on Joseph's shoes right now because it's such a crazy story to think about, okay? There's so many cultural norms of his day that were just being broke right and left that if you were Joseph, this was a hard thing to say yes to and to walk in. So let's break this down. Number one, for his fiance here to be pregnant, it was a shame on her and also brought shame on him. 
This is a honor-shame society. It's hard for us to really picture what it's like to live in a deep honor-shame society. There's still some cultures in our world today that, that have that around, but not so much in America. And so for, for him to actually you know, be betrothed to a woman who was pregnant um, would have been an incredible shame to walk into. His family would have looked down on him. His family would have been you know, ashamed of him. And this case was also that for Mary. And number two, you know, people would have been thinking like, well, who is the father? Is it Joseph? Is it some other person? Right? And knowing that that reputation would have kind of stuck through him the rest of his life. Okay? The rest of his life would have been, he would have had that. And again, this was very difficult in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago. Okay? The best story I can kind of come up with, the kind of, in modern day terms, there's, there's a man named Thomas Rainer James uh, who not that long ago just got out of jail. He spent 30 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He was proven to be innocent, even though he was thought of to be guilty for so long. In a similar way, Joseph would have to accept, if he said yes, the story that would say, you're guilty of this. You committed adultery. You married this woman who committed adultery, and he's innocent of it, but he would inherit that reputation of being guilty for that, which would have brought shame on him. But what would he do, right? Verse 24, let's see what he chose to do. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He woke up and decided to say yes and walk into this. And he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Right? He didn't consummate this marriage until after Christ was born because it said the virgin would conceive and bear a son. This is another important custom that was broken that would be another uh, shameful thing. And again, it's hard to understand that, but that would be a shameful thing. Another thing that he uh, walked into here, that his family would say, huh, you are a strange guy, Joseph. You're making no sense to us. This is how his family would have thought of him, Right? We, what we know just seeing this, number one, we see that God's ways are not of this world. There's all these different things that were set up. And when God got to work in Joseph's life and brought this into his own life, it was up and against all of those things. It brought great misunderstanding to Joseph's life. It, it didn't make any sense to the world that Joseph lived in to say yes to this and to walk into this. Joseph was faced with the question, if I listen to God... My earthly reputation will be ruined, and I will bring shame to my family. Now, shame is an interesting thing, right? The Scientific American has a lot, I was reading a lot of research on shame, and shame usually comes when you become aware that you have transgressed a norm or some cultural standard that you fell short of. And when you see that cultural standard is desirable and you don't meet it, Suddenly, that's where the shame comes. You feel embarrassed. You feel like you're less than, right? And often, people don't vocalize this, you know? People don't, don't say, like, shame on you. Like, that's not so much what happens. What, how the process goes is the shame is in our imagination that when we talk to people, they may be, you know, kind to us, but you're in your mind thinking, what are they really thinking about me? What do they actually think that they go home and say, psh, 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 you know? That kind of thing. You know, I can't believe he really did this, but oh, hi, how you doing? You know, that kind of thing. That's when we, we, we develop shame in our lives. Maybe some of you have been through that yourself. 
It can be a small thing, it can be very major, right? Because shame can be devastating, really, for us. Shame can bring deep self-esteem issues, creating more conditions for psychological problems, depression, various anxiety disorders. So as Joseph allowed these cultural norms and rules of his day to define him, if he wanted his life to be defined by those things, and he said yes to God's plan and work in his life, he just decided to potentially bring ruin to his own reputation, right? And have a lot of challenges himself in battling this big, large misunderstanding between those around him and himself. Again, just to translate this to today, just to put this in one more modern day context, imagine your friend or son or brother, whatever, they're engaged, and they come up to you and say, look, my fiance is pregnant, I know it's not me, trust me, but I had a dream, okay, and an angel started talking to me and said, no, Mary here, this child's from God, from the Holy Spirit, and I, I'm going to do this. I mean, it's such a crazy thing. If they told that to you, you probably would say, huh, maybe just sleep on this a little more, like think this through here, okay? This is a really big decision just to say yes to from a dream, right? And that's what happened here, right? But if this world is not the only reality there is, okay? Track with me here. If the society we live in and the cultural norms of our day are not the standard, right? Are not perfect, are not immutable. And if in God's kingdom, in God's place, in God's reality, If what Joseph is doing makes perfect sense and would even be considered something as very faithful and righteous, right, and and obedient, Um, putting him in the place, right, thousands of years later we read this story and we're like, wow, this Joseph guy, this this is pretty remarkable faith here, remarkable obedience, right? Um, What is that? That's what I was kept asking myself while I was preparing for this sermon, like, How is it something that seems so ridiculous to our society carried with it such a weighty meaning today, right? We see this story, we're like, wow, this is quite amazing. I'm gonna unpack this for the rest of our time today, Um, later on at least. But there's one more dimension I wanna focus on before we get there, and that is this, that God's work in our lives, it may be confusing to us in this world, but also that God's work through our lives, because in some way we're, we're actually you know, seeing God's work through Joseph's life today. And I want to talk about that for a second here. God's work through our lives is often also confusing as we seek to live out the good news of Jesus, right? Um, Being shaped by the gospel story, being shaped by obedience to God and who God is and he, you know, that he is love and he sent his son to die for our sins, to do this great work that in the kingdom of God is breaking into this world with different values and standards that are not shared by God. And so when our lives become consumed with this, with this heavenly life that is breaking into this world through the Holy Spirit and we're walking in light of Christ, sometimes as we seek to be like Jesus and to do the things that he did and let our lives be shaped by him, some of the things that we find ourselves doing will not make a lot of sense in this world. I'm gonna tell a story here about how this is the case. Um, I heard a, a pastor talk about this. This is a true story. I try not to tell fake stories. This is a true story. He was a pastor and this young professional woman, this is in a city he pastored in, she started attending his church. She had been to service a couple of times and she sought audience with him. And so as he sat with her, he learned she wasn't a Christian. She was essentially an atheist, at this point possibly a skeptic, 
didn't have any faith, but was really intrigued by Jesus and just wanted to know more about him. So his first question was, well, what made you so interested in Jesus? Why? Expecting to hear something like, oh, you know, I heard, you know, I was reading the Bible one day or some kind of simple story like that. What she told was very different and remarkable. This is her story. She said, I was recently hired to work at a very large corporation and worked directly beneath one of the chief executives. There was a couple of those guys and they worked for the president of the company. Early on with me working there, I made a huge mistake, a mistake that cost the company tens of thousands of dollars. And I know in my infancy at this job, I lost it. I lost my job, I'm gonna be fired. But knowing how much I needed this job, I just simply embraced my mistake for what it was and I was awaiting my firing when I got that call to say, hey, come and see me in my office from the chief executive that she worked for. So she walks in expecting to be fired and he says, look, we know what happened. You still have your job. Learn from your mistake. Let's press forward. I was stunned, she said, confused, not sure what to think. I walked away thinking I was either the luckiest person in the world or that they had not quite discovered just how much money that I you know, lost for the company. It was waiting a second round to rarely get fired that time, right? But as she told the story to her pastor here, I learned quickly from my other coworkers in the following days that this chief executive I worked for, that he had lost the company tens of thousands of dollars as if that was his fault and everyone was talking about it. Really, more confused at this point, she said, I went back to him and she said, what is happening? Did you take the blame for what I did? Why does everybody think you did this? And then he looked at me and said, I knew if I took the blame for what happened, I may be penalized greatly. And the president of the company may think differently of me, sure, but he wouldn't fire me. But I knew if they found out you did it, you'd have been fired instantly. And I knew how much you needed this job. That was his answer. She said, then he got real quiet and told her. Well, yeah, there's an awkward silence. And then the next question that was obvious for her said, came out of her mouth and she said, why? Why in the world would you do something like that? It was then she said that he told her about Jesus and about the cross and the core teachings of what Christianity was and how that caused him to make that decision. And she said, that happened just a few weeks ago and I just walked in your church because I don't know what happened. That's really still confusing to me. And I just wanna know more about this Jesus that would bring somebody to do something like that. I share that story because that's precisely what happens with a life shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ. That in our world's mindset thinks, what? Why would you do that? Why would you give up so much for this you know, person that there's so many rungs down on that corporate ladder? Why would you ever do something like that? A harm to yourself just to help this, per- this, this person that's so low on a totem pole out? Like, why would you do something like that? Well, if you know the story of Christ, it makes a lot of sense. He was showing somebody, like actually showing somebody, and then had the chance to tell somebody the good news of Jesus that our world doesn't have a box for. Our world doesn't quite have a box that says that's a good, a good thing that you should do. That's the kind of life that is shaped by Jesus, his humility, his example, his love and grace for others, and choosing to ultimately not live 
with only himself in mind, but to die to himself like Christ did and experience the newness of life of today in God's kingdom. And ultimately, I bring that up because as we see Joseph responding to him and God working through him, there's still that kind of confusion. Like, this is a very interesting life that Joseph has, right? And it often happens as we're walking in light of the good news of Jesus. And thirdly, there's a hope here because it wasn't easy for Joseph, that guy, that executive who, who gave this grace to this young woman, he experienced consequences. It wasn't easy for him. And I want to be real about this, is that life often doesn't make sense as we walk in light of God and allow his work to enter into our life through his spirit. It's not always rosy and easy, but it's often confusing and difficult. But there's a hope this Christmas season that undergirds that life the undergirds that says, you know, even if things aren't easy, there's, there is a day when all these things can be overturned. There is a day when he returns to make all things new. And there's a spirit with me that can provide hope and contentment and joy, even in the midst of challenging, extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Um, there's no promise that if we want to be faithful, that life will be easy, right? Maybe you have experience when you you know, started following Jesus and wanted to be a Christian, a family member saying, oh man, you're a religious nut too. Like really? You're one of those born again people. I didn't know you, you got crazy and weird. Maybe you, some of you can recognize or identify with having family that's thought that, right? Um, surely Joseph experienced something like that as he said yes to this. But there's many times in the Psalms especially, time and time again, that when people are just trying to just chase after God and, and place their hope and faith in him, that it's not easy. And Psalm 10 verses 1 through 2 is just an example of countless other verses. And it says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God's ways in this world are often confusing and even often don't initially make sense to us. But in this Christmas story, in the birth of Christ, we find a hope, however, that can cultivate a deep faith that says maybe in the dark and confusing things in this world, God really still is at work, that his goodness is somehow still present. And in faith, he calls us to accept this and embrace this as we seek to allow him to continue to work in our lives. There's a very interesting thing here in this famous Christmas passage of Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 5. The fact that Christmas hope, that the hope of Advent speaks of a child directly, I think has something to do with this. Let's, let's pay attention to these verses in Isaiah. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You multiply the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian." For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, 
the people that were in darkness, in oppression, call it life at its worst, they saw a light breaking in. The violence of their oppression would soon cease and all the garments that were wrapped up in that violence would be just good enough for fire and nothing else. And their darkness would be lit up by a great light. But what was the great light? In verse six, the following verse, for to us, what is born? A child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of his father, David, and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's the word of the Lord. So a child is born, a son, and this idea of a perfect government will rest upon him. All those names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He will be a son of David, a kingdom without end. He will rule over those in darkness perceive that hope. Those in anguish and oppression receive that hope that a child will be born. Now, the interesting thing about this, that a child is what was focused on. That in Isaiah, this is, you know, uh, it's not only the child that would come, but it was the birth event. It was actually this child being born that he focused on in this prophecy. Now, the birth event for anyone is just the beginning of their life. For this child to be born one day would be all of those wonderful things. But Isaiah didn't focus on like so much on the end when that child was an adult. He said that the birth of this child will spur the hope for all the things that is to come. And you think of the child that Joseph received as he held that child. Now, in a small step, those prophecies were beginning to be fulfilled, but as you hold that child, you're still a hope that remains that said this child, when he grows up, will he accomplish these things? They're still, they're still waiting. They're still an anticipation. At Christmas, we still look at the birth event of Christ. We still have an anticipation as we wait for these things to happen. And as, as this child grew, ultimately he was rejected, almost by all, and he was brutally murdered as he hung there on the cross. Yet out of that murder, the cross, there was salvation, the forgiveness of sins, which of course, a few days later led to an empty tomb. It led to life from death. But that risen Jesus didn't stay here on earth and become that king who would take on all the government on his shoulders and cause him be, officially be the prince of peace. What did he do? He left. He ascended back to heaven and he sent his spirit down to this world that descended upon this world. And that future age will Christ will really be that prince of peace. We may receive glimpses of that in our lives, but we still wait. We still hope. We still long for. Similar to holding that child saying one day you'll be, but you're still a child. Now we still await this second advent and this coming when all these things will finally come to fruition, but we've received glimpses of it through the Holy Spirit in our lives today. 
And what this causes for us today is that even in light of tremendous difficulty, confusion that may be involved when we are trying to walk in light of God's work in our life through his spirit, as we're trying to be shaped by Jesus and be like him and those confusing and difficult things occur in our life, we see all these promises. We know that there's still more to come and more that awaits. And we know that the spirit was given to us to give glimpses of that future perfect age in our life today through his power and through his presence. And it causes us to say, wow, life is hard, but I have hope. God hasn't abandoned us. Like we look to Christmas to say the child that was born is just, we go back to that story because we still say this world is still dark, but one day he's going to come back. One day it really is going to happen. And all of these things will be overthrown once and for all. And it gives us perseverance in light of tremendous pain and suffering and difficulty that we experience in our life. But it's hard. Anybody who's been through something difficult like this says, well, yeah, Pastor Dan, that's easy for you to say. Suffering stinks. <laughs> it's hard, especially around holiday seasons. It's extra hard. It's just throwing your own fuel in this fire. It's so hard, right? But all we can do is look to Jesus and look to scriptures. And Jesus said something like this. Because I believe the greatest enemy as we battle this, right? Trying to find this peace and contentment in the midst of confusion, difficult circumstances. One of the greatest enemies that we face is really ourselves. Because we would often rather have a life today that would be centered around our greatest interests now. That would be centered around having the best life possible now. Rather than what God may be doing in our lives and through our lives. And maybe even has cause to happen in our lives that doesn't seem like the best life now, but seems rather hard and challenging. But I think the first step in this, so really the lifelong step we're always battling is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was not a stranger to suffering. He was not a stranger to going through something extraordinarily difficult. He was not a stranger, even his own family. At one point in the Gospel of Mark, thought he was crazy. He's not a stranger to these things. And as you experience hardship and difficulty and suffering in your own life, Jesus says, pick up that cross. Like, pick it up. Put it on your shoulder. And keep walking. And deny yourself. Turn your own back on yourself and pick up that suffering and walk. Experience the death that is caused by denying yourself here. Because when you deny yourself, you will actually find yourself. When you turn your back on your own self and just release yourself over unto God, even in the midst of the difficulties, he says, you're going to find yourself. Let that cross lead you to new life. Let that cross lead you to experiencing the fullness of life in the spirit. No promise that the suffering will go away, but the promises of what's available to us as you bear those difficulties, that's real. You can experience what John called eternal life. We think of eternal life as something future. The apostle John talked about eternal life as present way more often than he did future because it's available to us today. There's this, that's the paradox of Christianity, right? That in the desert, there's a flower. 
In the death of Christ, we find new life. Even Paul says, if I, as I put on the death of Jesus every single day trying to die to myself, I experience the power of the resurrection. These two things side by side are what we carry in our lives. Paul actually said this um, uh, on, the, on the back end as we're fighting this, as we're trying to find this. There's something remarkable. There's a famous verse that we find on coffee mugs and bumper stickers and, you know, etc. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. But what are those all things? Because that verse is often snatched and just like thrown in our coffee mugs. I can do everything. I can put together this Lego set through Christ who strengthens Like, what? Like, what is all things, Right? Let's look at the context for a minute. This is what all things were, and just the verses right before. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. This is that new life, friends, that we have available to us today. Listen. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. That is sharing in the power of the resurrection that says, I have plenty, but I won't bow down to it as a God or as something that will save me. Or I'm really hungry, I missed a meal. I'm still content. The things that are hard, I still find life, and the things that are in abundance in this world, I don't bow down to them, right, and get caught up in them. I am content in Jesus Christ and knowing him and knowing the power of his resurrection. In God's kingdom, our contentment and joy in life has the possibility, right, of not being shaped by our circumstances. Say it one more time. Our contentment and joy in life has the possibility of not being shaped by our circumstances, but being shaped by the good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and through the very work and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. So back to Joseph, he's, if he, as he goes forward with God's plan, knowing the difficulties that he's saying yes to. I mean, in our scriptures, Joseph kind of just vanishes off our pages. We don't know anything else about him. We know that he probably died when Jesus was somewhat young because he doesn't appear in the later narratives in the gospel. Right? But something tells me that he got a taste of this kind of contentment that Paul spoke of as he walked in faithfulness. And I think in this story, this is an encouragement for us. This is whether this is a season of abundance in your life or a season of hardship and difficulty, that there's still hope and contentment available for you. I'm going to read that wilderness passage out of Isaiah 35. I want you to think about this. The paradox is here. I hope that the the Spirit can be speaking to you now. You can identify this if it's you this morning. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Anybody ever been to a desert before, right? You don't think of like glad. There's some beauty there, sure, but you don't think of gladness so much. You don't think of life when you see the the brown grayness and thorns and cactus and all that everywhere. But the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon 
they shall see the glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? That the desert is blooming. It should not be blooming, but it's blooming. That's our Advent hope. In darkness, there's light. In Joseph, Joseph's crazy, difficult life he'd be walking into, that there's going to be hope and contentment available for him. That whether God leads us into such a desert or that he brings it upon us, that a child was born leading to the desert of this world, seeing a blooming rose burst forth out of waterless ground. Friends, that's Christmas. That's hope that life is indeed available where there seems to be no life. And so now I want to call our worship team forward as we close our time. They're going to play a song first as a way of response. Because I, 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 I hope that the word of the Lord that was brought to you this morning as our eyes are fixated upon Christ this morning and the hope that lies in him this Advent season. This is our time in our services where we respond, where we give a chance to not just, you know, quick and, and move and be done with our service and go home, but rather the Holy Spirit is, is with us. He's active. He speaks. And I, I, I really believe he wants to talk to you this morning. He wants you to talk to him. This is what prayer is. It's engagement with the God of the universe through his spirit to allow his words to be spoken to us in order that our lives may be full of him and full of his grace and full of his power and full of his hope. And so they're going to sing a song. And after that song, we're going to have people available up front here for prayer. You can stay seated, right? Um, You may even feel called to walk over to somebody in this room and pray with them. You may feel called to come forward and receive prayer. However, the Lord urges you to respond this morning. At Emmanuel Church, we want to be with Jesus. We want to be like him. We want to do the things that he did. We want to be little Christs that are full of his Holy Spirit as we walk in our lives. And so today is about uh, being with him right now in this room. And so, um, Jesus, I ask in your grace that through your spirit, Lord, speak words of life to your saints. Lord, if anybody's in need of just uh, healing, physical or spiritual, or that your spirit would be at work in this room, or that words of life could be spoken to people who are here with just confusion and difficulties and trials, that those who are just kind of wishing for an escape route to just leave life and not face it, Lord, can find just encouragement from Joseph who walked into the difficulty that you called him to. Because, Lord, we know that you will sustain us and persevere us, Lord, and undergirded us with the hope that you came, that you are coming again to once and for all overthrow death and pain and suffering. So Holy Spirit, manifest yourself in the hearts of your people this morning as we sing this song and then respond in prayer. We love you so much. We love you so much. We just can't fathom. I couldn't fathom life without hope, without the hope of the gospel. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.